Welcome everyone to episode 18 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Here's a story from AppalachianMagazine.com. Southern Fish Camps, where tradition is fried. Located at the headwaters of the Santee River Basin, the mountains of western North Carolina and South Carolina are home to hundreds of streams which feed into the Catawba and Broad Rivers, offering anglers incredible opportunities to fish the 440 miles of waterway that stretches from the basin's highest elevation to the Atlantic Ocean. In 2011, the state of North Carolina stocked nearly 10,000 brown trout into the water along the eastern slope of the Blue Ridge Mountains and followed this up with five supplemental stockings over the next four years, leaving the waterway with an abundance of stocked brown, rainbow, and brook trout. In addition to the many trout which grace the upstream waters, bass fishing, particularly largemouth bass, is one of the Catawba River's main attractions farther south. Upon dropping an elevation out of the mountains of Appalachia into south-central North Carolina, the water becomes sluggish and often muddy, which helps support aquatic vegetation, offering an excellent habitat for largemouth bass. Deep holes in the river also harbor massive flathead and channel catfish, and panfish anglers in search of table fare will find bluegill, bream, red-breast sunfish, and crappie, writes USA Today. It should therefore come as no surprise, then, that fishing is as much a part of the local culture of this region as Sunday school and car racing, and nowhere is this tradition as celebrated as it is in its countless number of fish camps. Like most all things regarding Southern history, the history of fish camps is somewhat controversial, and nearly everyone has a Granddaddy Sid story, which is perfectly acceptable and may all be true. Dating back to the turn of the previous century, fish camps, brush harbor areas where fresh fish were cooked and served in shelters that had no walls and sawdust floors, began springing up throughout the Southland. Some say the tradition dates back to the camp meeting-style revival days of old. A common activity among worshippers would be to take up a collection for fresh fish and someone would then drive to the nearest beach and purchase a truckload of seafood and bring it back hundreds of miles inland. The fresh fish would be offered as an attraction to bring people in to hear the preaching. The fish would be served each night of the camp meeting until it ran out, and often the meeting would end soon afterward. These areas became known as fish camps. The predominant theory, however, maintains that fish camps developed along highly fished southern rivers, particularly in the Carolinas, but also in Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. Fishermen would bring their catch to the nearest fish camp, and individuals would clean, prepare, cook, and then serve the fish to the angler. In the years ahead, these camps would evolve from their eat-what-you-catch beginnings to serve as full-functioning restaurants. Though lost to history throughout much of the nation, the tradition of fish camps continues to live on throughout Dixie, especially in Gaston County, North Carolina, where no fewer than 13 fish camps operate today.
The tune was catchy and lively. In the days before the top 40, this was at the top of the charts. Soldiers in the Civil War knew the song and sung it often. The Yellow Rose of Texas spoke of home, especially for Texans, and of the girl back home. It was also easy to add more verses to the song, and this helped out when soldiers sang while marching or sitting around during the lulls between battles. Late in the war, the love song became a subtle war protest song, with some new verses added. My feet are torn and bloody. My heart is full of woe. I'm going back to Georgia to see my Uncle Joe. You may talk about your Beauregard. You may sing of Bobby Lee. But the gallant hood of Texas, he played hell in Tennessee. There was more than a hint of irony in calling General John B. Hood gallant, and there was much bitterness in his having played hell in Tennessee. From PorterBriggs.com John B. Hood, The Confederacy's Gallant Failure This is a story by Ben House. The reference here was to one of the most audacious but poorly planned and disastrous campaigns of the Civil War. It was General Hood's chance to overturn the loss of Atlanta, Georgia to give the South one last opportunity to win the war. Taking place in the last months of 1864, this campaign was a futile attempt to stave off a final defeat. Instead, it likely hastened that result. At the center of the story, the man in charge, and the ultimate one at blame for the defeat, was General Hood. His career as an officer in the Confederacy basically had three stages. First, he rose to great rank due to his battlefield successes. Then, he suffered some severe injuries that increasingly hampered his mobility and perhaps his battlefield psychology. Finally, he became the youngest man to become a commander of an army, only to witness a series of devastating defeats. Hood was a Kentuckian by birth and a Texan by choice. Graduating from West Point, where he excelled more in demerits than achievements, Hood served in the U.S. Army in California and Texas. When Kentucky opted to stay in the Union, Hood resigned his commission with the Army and joined the Confederate service in Texas, which he referred to as my adopted land. Along with his military training and service, Hood had connections with Robert E. Lee, who had been the superintendent at West Point during Hood's time there. Later, Hood served in the 2nd U.S. Cavalry, whose officers included Lee and a number of others who became prominent Confederate leaders. It was in the heat of battle where Hood excelled. When the occasion called for bold aggression, frontline leadership, and unflinching valor, Hood rose to the top. At Gaines Mill, which was a portion of the bigger battle known as Seven Days Battle, Hood led his brigade in a charge that broke the enemy's line. Battlefield successes and advancements in rank continued. At one point, a dispute with a superior resulted in Hood's being temporarily suspended. But when his Texans shouted, Give us Hood to General Lee, Hood resumed command. The second stage of Hood's career began at the Battle of Gettysburg. Against his advice and objections, he was ordered to stage an attack on the Union left. This flanking maneuver put Hood's troops under direct enemy fire. To make matters worse, the area was strewn with rocks that aided the defenders. The attack fell short, but even worse for Hood was an injury he received that left his left arm useless. When Longstreet's corps was sent to the west to aid General Braxton Bragg, Hood had both his greatest personal triumph and his worst injury. It was Hood who led the assault when a gap opened up in the Union line at the Battle of Chickamauga. In the heat of the battle, Hood had grabbed up the brigade flag of his Texas unit, 
Almost immediately, he was hit in the right leg by what was called an exploding bullet. Even then, he insisted on staying on the battlefield until the enemy was retreating. Once the surgeons saw his condition, they realized his leg would have to be amputated just below the thigh. Always the fighter, Hood returned to battle about half a year later. He was made a corps commander in the Army of Tennessee, which was then commanded by General Joe Johnston. Due to his injuries, Hood had to be helped on and strapped to the horse he was riding. He had to ride up to 20 miles a day. The key objective at that time for the Confederacy in the West was holding the city of Atlanta against the forces of General William T. Sherman, when it became evident that General Johnston either could not or would not hold that vital city, he was relieved of command. John B. Hood, age 33, replaced him and became the youngest army commander in the Confederacy. This success and promotion was followed, however, by his own inability to hold Atlanta. After Atlanta, Hood, with little explanation to his superiors, with limited supplies, and with great visions of success, embarked on a campaign to recapture Tennessee and unite his forces with Lee in Virginia. First, Hood swung his army far to the west of the northern forces and crossed back over the state lines into Tennessee. One of his goals was to destroy the supply lines for Sherman's army and stop his movements into the deep south. Sherman, planning his infamous march to the sea, anticipated his army's need to live off the land, and so he was largely unconcerned with Hood's ventures. Having plenty of troops, he did send forces back toward Nashville to bolster defenses there. When Hood missed the opportunity to crush the Union forces that Sherman had sent his way, he determined to make up for it at the town of Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. In a war filled with failed frontal attacks, the one that Hood ordered at Franklin exceeds even Pickett's charge for its futility. The Union forces were able to take a strong defensive position south of the Harpeth River, which runs through Franklin. Hood's divisional commanders cautioned him against attacking the fortified Union line. Hood overruled the objections and ordered his army forward across nearly two miles of open ground. The results were devastating. Historian Richard McMurray notes, Casualties were staggering. Over 6,000 men were dead and wounded. One brigade lost 419 of its 600 men. One of its companies, 10 of its 18 men. In part of the ditch along the Federal works, the Confederate dead were piled seven deep. McMurray went on to point out that the loss of commands, including six generals, was even more serious for the South. The Union forces left the field not in defeat, but in order to join with other forces defending Nashville. Unbelievably, Hood pressed his shattered army on towards Nashville. Once there, they dug in, vainly hoping for reinforcements. Instead, being December, they got cold and wet weather. Then the Union forces under George Thomas attacked and drove Hood and his men back through Franklin. Soldiers crossing the battlefield from a few weeks earlier found their feet sinking in the graves of their fallen comrades. With well over half his army destroyed, Hood led his men back across the Tennessee border. There were no more illusions of victory. The soldiers and the remaining officers were clamoring for the reinstatement of Joe Johnston, the man Hood replaced as the commander. As the song says, I'm going back to Georgia to see my Uncle Joe. Whatever gallantry Hood possessed as an individual soldier was now lost upon those he had led into Tennessee. Small break here for some special announcements about the show. 
first of all, the show's website at curse.land has been completely redesigned. Uh, that design is live now, finally. Uh, the cover art has been updated to match. It looks way better on cell phones and like tablets and stuff. Um, I put in some links to new ways to listen to the podcast, like other podcast players, if that's your thing. Uh, if you don't see the redesign of the new cover art yet, don't worry. I think that some podcast clients sort of cache that stuff maybe longer than they should. The feed itself has not changed, uh, so you don't need to change anything about your subscription. I've talked before on the show about how I am massively uncomfortable asking people for money, but I wanted to talk a little bit here about how the show makes money and how you can send some money if you want to. Someday I would love to do like a line of physical products, like maybe some shirts or hoodies or something, but if I ever do that, I want those things to be really nice like preferably American made and that sort of thing, you know, not just from some like drop shipper or whatever. Uh, anyway, currently, uh, I do not have time to figure out that kind of thing. Um, that I cannot take that product development to a level that I think I would be happy with. Uh, so no products currently, but currently what we do have is the old standby, the donate page. New website has a donate page where you can send any amount of money directly. Uh, right now, that is a PayPal button and a, a Bitcoin address. I may add some other ways to do that in the future. Pretty standard stuff. The other thing the site does is wherever I have a link to a book, I have turned that into an Amazon affiliate link. Now, I would definitely encourage people to go on there and check out some of the favorites of the show. You know, you can get your own copy of the Kentucky Book of the Dead or whatever else you see on there that you like. Uh, one last thing, and we're going to get back to the stories, I promise. Those Amazon affiliate links will pay out to me if you buy anything at all on Amazon, regardless if it's the thing that I link to. So if you intend to get something on Amazon anyway, and you'd like to support the show at no cost at all to yourself, feel free to just click on an Amazon link from curse.land and proceed to buy anything else that you would normally buy. Anyhow, thanks a lot to everybody who's already supported the show. I really do appreciate it. And now back to the stories. The September 8, 1961 issue of Life magazine featured a photo essay about a young boxer, 19-year-old Cassius Clay, who had an unusual training technique. He trained underwater. Clay had recently won a gold medal in the 1960 Olympics, and since going pro, he had won his first eight matches. He was also making a name for himself outside the ring as a charismatic and outspoken character. From the hoaxes.org website, this is a story entitled, Muhammad Ali, Underwater Training Hoax. In 1964, he would win the World Heavyweight Championship and change his name to Muhammad Ali, by which history remembers him better. But in 1961, Clay was busy training for his ninth match against Alex Mittiff, who outweighed him by 20 pounds. However, Clay was confident that his underwater training would give him the edge in the ring. The text of the photo essay explained, Not to be bragging or anything like that, says 19-year-old Cassius Marcellus Clay, but they say I'm the fastest heavyweight in the ring today. That comes from punching underwater. 
Taking a cue from the immortal Ty Cobb, who weighted his shoes in training so that he would feel feather-footed when the season started, Clay goes into a swimming pool, and as these underwater pictures show, does a stunt of submarine shadow boxing. You try to box hard, he explains, then when you punch the same way out of the water, you got speed. Clay did proceed to beat Midiff, knocking him out in the sixth round, so evidently the underwater training worked. Except, no. Clay didn't train underwater. In reality, the photo shoot he did for life was the one and only time he ever trained underwater. He had invented the story about underwater training as a stunt to get publicity. However, for years, no one questioned the claim about training underwater. It was simply accepted as part of the lore of Muhammad Ali. Until finally, around 1997, the photographer who did the photo shoot, Flip Shulk, revealed that Ali had invented the story. In 1961, Sports Illustrated had assigned Shulk to take pictures of Clay, so Shulk traveled to Overtown, Florida, where Clay was training. When he first met Clay, Shulk tried to impress the young boxer by sharing examples of his work. For instance, Shulk revealed that he specialized in underwater photography and had recently had photos published in Life showing water skiers from below the surface of the water. Seeing these photos, Clay immediately told Shulk that it so happened that he trained underwater in a swimming pool because an old trainer up in Louisville told me that if I practice in the pool, the water resistance acts just like a weight. Clay demonstrated by jumping into the pool at the hotel where he was staying, the Sir John Hotel, and started to throw punches in the water. Underwater training sounded plausible enough to Shulk, and he thought photos of it would make an interesting feature, so he pitched the idea to Sports Illustrated. But the editor there, as Shulk later said, thought I was crazy for taking pictures of a boxer in a swimming pool. However, the editor also gave Shulk permission to pitch the idea to Life, saying, go ahead and ask Life if you want to. If they're dumb enough to, let them do it. So Shulk called Life and they liked the idea. Shulk proceeded with the photo shoot. The pictures ran in Life and they became among the most celebrated sports photos of all time. One of the pictures from the shoot, showing Clay fully underwater with his fists raised, is one of the most famous pictures of Ali ever taken. But it didn't run in life because the editors there thought it looked too posed. Shulk next met Clay three years later, after the boxer had won the World Heavyweight Championship. In his 2003 book, Witness to Our Times, Shulk described this meeting. We were looking through a scrapbook, and when he came across my underwater pictures, he winked at me. I realized he had taken me. I learned later he and his trainer had come up with the whole story on their own. He didn't even know how to swim. He fooled everybody, and it made fantastic pictures. You know, it's funny. That story is such a good hoax that I have heard people still repeat that as fact even today. I didn't have any idea at all that it wasn't real until I came across this for the show. In 1945, the war that racked the world was finally over. American women who had served as military translators, typists, and even pilots found themselves out of a job. At the same time, the spam man was trying to sell tinned pork. From atlasobscura.com, here's a story entitled The Rise and Fall of the Hormel Girls Who Sold America on Spam. And this story is by Ann Eubank. J.C. Hormel was the spam man. 
head of Hormel Foods, he was the canny heir to his father's canned meat business. Under him, the company introduced the smooth, spiced pork product known as Spam right on the cusp of the Second World War. But there was a problem. By wartime's end, 90% of Hormel's inventory was shipped overseas as food for American troops and allies. The company now needed to market wartime tinned food to a peacetime audience. So in 1946, the Hormel Company started hiring for the Hormel Girls, a drum and bugle corps of female musicians who had served in the war. As a veteran himself of World War I, Hormel was concerned for his employees who served. During the war, according to authors Jill M. Sullivan and Danielle D. Keck in their paper, The Hormel Girls, he had sent letters to enlisted male employees assuring them that their jobs were waiting. When two managers devised a marketing strategy of an all-female military-style band to promote Hormel products, Jay Hormel was quick to support it. As Sullivan and Keck point out, it was designed to push a quasi-patriotic button for consumers who associated Hormel with the American military. The requirements to be a Hormel girl reflected the times. Most of the performers were white, and all were unmarried. They also had to play instruments. Ladies' bands weren't unusual. Even in the late 19th century, all female troops promoted American music and American brands. Hormel had even established a touring group of musicians to promote Hormel's Chili Con Carne with Mexican music in the 1930s. On August 29th, the Hormel girls completed their first month of training. Their test was the 29th American Legion National Drum and Bugle Corps Championship held in New York. In neat uniforms, they played hits, such as Yankee Doodle Dandy and Give My Regards to Broadway. As the competition's first female team, they finished 13th. There was avid media interest, both positive and negative. The New York Times reported on an injunction brought by noise-sensitive neighbors near the Corps' Connecticut training grounds, but that was outweighed by the spectacle of the musicians performing and on parade. Hormel soon realized that the group was an advertising powerhouse. Twenty girls from the original 48 agreed to stay on, and those numbers soon grew. They marched in parades, played in shows, and sold Hormel products, especially Spam, door-to-door. Advertisements proclaimed that when talented ex-GI drum and bugle girls came to town, they distributed free Spam or chili in stores. Driving 35 matching white Chevrolets, the performers proceeded like a caravan, drawing attention wherever they went. In 1948, the Hormel girls went to Hollywood and took to the airwaves. According to Sullivan and Keck, they changed their style for radio. While before they had played a mix of military and popular music, the music with the Hormel girls show featured big band music punctuated by regular reminders that Hormel's chili and ham was the best. It proved a good combination. By 1953, the show was number four in the yearly Nielsen rankings. The Hormel girls were famous. Soon, they stopped going door-to-door and only pitched Hormel products to stores. The girls earned bonuses for selling lots of meat with a premium for spam sales. But selling wasn't the main requirement. It was still all about performing. I didn't want to sell anything, former Hormel girl Martha Aukerman told Sullivan and Keck. I was there to play my horn. In the early 1950s, the show expanded to include dance. The Hormel girls wore elaborate costumes and performed for locals and grocers. 
Jay Hormel, channeling his inner band leader, decided who would sing and play which instrument. Some of the musicians considered him nitpicky, but he may have just been passionate about music. Several of his children and grandchildren became performers. As the group reached its peak, many newer Hormel girls were photogenic professional musicians instead of GIs. It was an in-demand job. The weekly salary of $50 was better than other wages for women at the time. It was glamorous, too. The women were known as the darlings of the airwaves, or more often, the spamettes. Motorcades of police cars escorted their Chevrolets into town. It was an unprecedented opportunity for young women to travel while earning good money. Despite the double duty of performances and sales, and the possible indignity of being called a spamette, most Hormel girls described the experience fondly. But in 1953, the show came to an end. The caravan was costing the Hormel company $1.3 million a year, and Jay Hormel was sick and would die in 1954. As television proved to be cheaper advertising, the last performance was held on December 13, 1953. Laverne Wollerman, one of the final performers, told Sullivan and Keck that the curtain was quickly pulled to hide that many of them were crying. Hormel girls went on to other jobs at the company, or in music, but there was no denying their effectiveness. In the years that the Hormel girls performed, Hormel's sales doubled, and Spam successfully made its transition from food of necessity to classic Americana. Still, in a 2010 interview, Hormel girls announcer Marilyn Wilson Ritter noted that Spam wasn't even her favorite. I liked the chili con carne, she said. And now, from NightmareMagazine.com, here's a story by Linda E. Rucker. Different Angels In the swelling, oppressive heat of a Georgia midday, Jolie came home. She choked on the red clay dust clouds billowing from beneath the wheels of the old Chevy that dropped her off half a mile past the end of the paved road. They had picked her up walking on the Calhoun Falls Highway, headed out of town. Jolie could see the concerned faces of the snot-nosed kids with whom she'd shared the back seat, pressing against the window, until the car dipped down a hill and out of sight. Her fingers were slick on the strap of the overnight-sized suitcase she carried, and she let it slip to the ground. Something rustled in the underbrush, and she closed her eyes. Snakes, maybe? Black racers, rattlers, moccasins moving fast and striking swift before she had time to run. She breathed in deep and smelled the honeysuckle twining there on the side of the road and the mellow reek of cow shit in the pastures beyond and the secretive stink of her own sweat. The smells were almost as good as a time machine. They took her back to that last summer of 1985. The last summer, she'd called it then, too, even before she'd ever really believed she'd be leaving. She had spent it in cool church sanctuaries, wearing ugly pantyhose and uglier shoes, slipping out after Bible study to make out with the college-bound boys. She imagined that something in those aloof intimacies might transfer that power of escape to her. Even after the scholarship, her father said she wasn't going off any place where she was going to get ideas about being better than she was, better than all the rest of them. She called the place a shithole, a redneck, white trash, low-class, goddamn piece of shit town. 
kind of town you wanted to raise your kids up in, the city elders said. While unbeknownst to them, their kids were doing speedballs down at the river and humping one another with the frenzy of dogs and heat. Kind of place everyone talked about running far, far away from. And no one ever did. Those same kids grew up to be city elders themselves and talked about what a good, God-fearing community they all resided in. So, Joe Lee held out little hope for escape until that late August night when ashes fell through the air like they came from the sky, from heaven, if heaven could ever be so generous, so just. The fireman said her father's last careless cigarette had freed her. Wherever her salvation had come from, Jolie had not believed until then that she would ever leave. She picked her way up the clay dirt road, here where the pine forests harvested by timber companies had grown back at last, round this bend where the heavy summer rain sent you sloughing off into the ditch if you weren't careful to drive real slow. Now over this hill and home again. The house stood at the end of a stretch of gravel, a white clabbered front she'd never seen, rebuilt since the fire. A new porch, too. Her mouth was dry and the air filled with the sounds of beating wings and hissing tongues, as though the moment she set foot here again, they had awakened. As though ten long years had not passed for them all. Get thee behind me, she told him. As she trudged toward the house that was nothing like her memory, her sister Luann stepped out onto the porch, shading her eyes, and spotted her. Luann's mouth dropped open, and she ran as fast as her short, chubby legs could carry her. Her teeth were stained yellow, and her hot tears washed Jolie's neck as she threw her arms around her. She smelled like coffee and cigarettes. Where had she been, and how did she get out there, Luann wanted to know. She had been waiting by the phone all morning for her call. Jolie didn't answer any of her queries. She couldn't think of what to say and couldn't imagine how to tell Luann just how badly she'd need her first moments out here to be alone ones. You didn't let somebody bring you out here, did you? Luann asked. Oh, honey, you did, didn't you? You ought not to have done that. You can't ever tell about people nowadays. Luann had put on a fair amount of weight in the last decade and a half, but her face remained the same, small and sharp, ringed with frizzy curls. You ain't going away again, are you, hon? Luann went on. You know you can stay here as long as you want. It was the invitation you extended to someone coming home in defeat. The last job lost. The apartment broken into. Another man gone. The precarious life crumbled. I just got tired, Joe Lee said. And it was mostly true. Her grand escape had been the grandest thing in her life so far. People's lives in cities up north were just as dead end as anyone's back home. Up north was just one long, endless waiting for something that never came. Up north was purgatory. Luann stepped back, and the sun behind her lit up her light-colored hair like a halo. Jolie squinted, still trying to study Luann's features, wondering if she might go blind in doing so. Would it truly be such a bad thing to sear her corneas useless? She could stand the lack of sight as long as it truly left her in darkness and not gazing eternally at a bleached, white, shining light. She'd always heard heaven described as a great lit place and thought there was nothing more horrific than a god who disallowed you your secret crevices, your hiding places. You'd be like an inmate sentenced to solitary confinement under a hellish burning bulb for all eternity. 
Let's get you something to eat, Luann said, hustling her up on the porch. Tears gleamed bright in her eyes. I can't hardly believe you're standing right here in front of me. I used to say, Ray, the one thing I wish for before I die is that my sister... Her mouth turned down now. Ugly, though she meant kind sentiment. Her chin shook. It's all right, Jolie said, touching her uselessly on the back and shoulders. But she stopped short at the threshold. In her dreams, she always returned home to a ruin, gutted throughout, when in truth only part of the house had burned. Luann had been long gone by the time of the fire, sharing an apartment with a girl in town. Perhaps then she felt under no obligation to preserve any reminders of that fateful night. But it was not only the rebuilding which had altered the look of the place. She let Luann push her past the screen door into a living room, where a cream-colored furniture set had replaced their parents' heavy old wood pieces. Jolie missed their weighty quality. That kind of furniture kept things anchored. Beyond, the kitchen, which had always hung heavy with stale cooking odors, was modernized beyond recognition. All the cabinets had been torn out and replaced with new ones. Even the floor was retiled. Jolie ran one hand along a light beige countertop. Everything here was cool and distant, welcoming her with the disinterested air of duty. Bola and them called earlier, Luann said. They want to come over for dinner tonight and see you. I told them you might be wore out and I'd have to check with you first. Jolie tried not to conjure any pictures of her aunt, but they came anyway. A pinched, pious woman who'd probably been born old, though Jolie had seen pictures to the contrary. She dyed her hair a severe black above wrinkled skin, as if that fooled anyone, and had always made Jolie feel as if she smelled bad or had snot smeared all over her face. I want to see the rest of the house, Jolie said. She realized she was desperate to see it. She wanted to touch all those surfaces again and stand in the middle of rooms and try to bring it all back again. I want to see my old room. Luann kept one hand on her back as she led her up the stairs, down the hallway. I think if I don't keep touching you, you'll disappear, she said with a clipped nervous laugh, and she swung open the door of the room at the end of the hall. I'm afraid we let your old room go all to seed, hun. Jolie stepped past her into a shadowy stillness. Heavy blinds covered both windows. For a moment, she imagined she saw the squares of her old posters still on the wall and the rickety bookcases crammed full, but Luann flicked the light on and she saw she'd been mistaken. It had become a room of cast-offs, of ugly lamps, appliances that didn't work, boxes no one would ever unpack. Jolie let her breath out. It had never been a sanctuary for her. When she was a little girl, her mother and Aunt Bola had come back from a shopping trip with a picture of Jesus for her to hang on the wall. Jesus was supposed to be floating in some cloudy heaven, his arms outstretched to welcome her, and love radiating from him in great, jagged, halo-like bursts of yellow and orange. But Jolie wasn't fooled. She knew what Bola and her mother had told her was holy light was in fact the flames of hell the flames she'd heard so much about. And if Jesus could be sent to burn in hell, then anyone could be. She was sure to be consumed by those flames. Her mother told her to hang it on the wall so Jesus could watch over her all the time, but Jolie knew that was just so Jesus could spy on her and report back to God, and maybe God would let him come back up from hell. I am hungry after all, Jolie said. 
not wanting to be in the room any longer. She hoped that wasn't where Ray and Luann planned to put her up at night. She wouldn't be able to sleep, even with that picture long gone, even with the room all changed. She'd still be able to see those flames before her in the darkness, the coiling and hissing of serpents Jesus had trained to do his bidding. The cool, beatific smile promised her something she didn't yet understand. Luann scooped up scrambled eggs and pieces of rubbery bacon onto plates for both of them and set one in front of Joe Lee. I know it's bad for you, she said, but Ray's got high cholesterol and we don't never get to eat nothing like this. I'll make a stir fry tonight. That all right with you? She didn't wait for Joe Lee to answer, but went right on talking about neighbors and people they'd gone to school with. Joe Lee remembered them only vaguely, as if she'd dreamed them, perhaps. You remember old Donnie Spinks, Lou Ann said, and that was a name Joe Lee did know. Old Donnie had lived in sin a few miles up the road from them with a woman, maybe half Indian or Oriental. Nobody knew, so they just called her a half-breed. Even the church ladies refused to go out there to witness. Donnie's land bordered on Jolie's granddaddy's field, a patch of dark woods leading to the junked yard and broken-down house where he lived. He had plenty of money, people said, even though he lived like a pauper there. When she was nine, old Donnie had saved her from getting snake-bit by the creek down the hill from his house, chopping off a rattler's head just before it struck at her. She had only seen him a few times before that, walking down the road or filling up his grocery cart at the Winn-Dixie in town where people gave him a wide berth. That day, she'd followed him up into his backyard, a tangle of weeds grown up half as tall as Joe Lee and old tires rotting next to half a gutted washer and dryer, a refrigerator, a sun-faded, rain-soaked couch with foam bursting out of the fabric. He had tried to get her to go inside and have a drink of water, but Joe Lee was not going to set foot inside that house. A woman's figure stood just on the other side of the screen, watching them. Joe Lee didn't ask to go to the bathroom either, even though she was about to pee in her pants. Walking home that day, she'd stopped on the side of the road and squatted in the woods, letting the warm urine trickle out onto the leaves. Afterwards, her panties felt moist and dirty. He died last year, Luann said. Awful how it happened. I guess his daughter went out to see him. I didn't even know he had a daughter. Did you? Anyway, he'd been dead a long time, drank himself to death. They said the animals had got to him some. And his daughter, well, she's just as crazy as he was because she waited a whole three days before she called anybody. She just sat out there with his body, I guess. It must have stank to high heaven. God, Jolie said, and forked up some of the bacon and eggs. She chewed for a long time, but the food just stayed there an unshrinking clot of grease and fat lingering in her mouth. She was embarrassed to think of seeing anyone she'd known. She who'd headed so proudly north without an inkling of the handicaps she toted with her, from the drawl that marked her as an ignorant redneck the moment she opened her mouth, to that Jesus burning in the flames, damned for all eternity and assuring her of her own fate too. And she didn't want to see Bola or her cousins either, she didn't want to see anyone at all. She only wanted to be in the woods again, the way she'd been as a child, mapping the marshes and following the old sawmill roads and happening upon the bleached white skulls of long dead cows, their eye sockets huge and mortal and empty. She used to think she could find God out there. The preacher called that kind of thinking paganism, 
which was the next thing to worshiping the devil as far as he could see. At night, Jolie dreamed of the devil, the huge brown reptilian creature reared up on powerful haunches with a thick, pointed tail. Hunched, as though he'd only recently learned to walk erect, his head was huge, vicious, curved horns erupting on either side of it. In her dreams, he tunneled up from some place in the woods and came up from a hole in the ground near where her mother used to plant jonquils in the spring. For months afterwards, Jolie avoided that part of the yard after dark. The only place she really felt safe was the old barn in Granddaddy's pasture. You stay away from there, Jolie, her father had told her. He said it was full of rusty nails and rats and she could fall through a floorboard in the loft or get bit by something and die of lockjaw. Jolie rarely defied her parents as a child, but she found that one private place irresistible. Ray's getting off his shift at the plant soon, Luann said, her gaze straying toward the clock on the oven. I gotta go pick him up. You wanna come? He'll be tickled to death to finally meet you. I think I'll stay here and take a nap, Jolie said. She could hardly wait to see Luann back in her car up the driveway. Her breath came in short, tight, anticipating grasps. She was alone, here at long last. Her granddaddy's property could be reached by the road if you were willing to walk a couple of winding miles, but the shortcut was through the woods. Jolie's head pounded from thirst, and salty sweat dripped from her upper lip into her mouth. She slapped at a constant irritation of gnats and mosquitoes whining around her. The heat made breathing difficult. She thought about snakes, poisonous snakes, sunning themselves, the quick lash of a viper's tongue. The sky would fill with the sounds of their beating wings. She did not know if she would be strong enough to will them away. She pressed on. The pond in the middle of Granddaddy's pasture had lost much of its water, and a brown ring of mud surrounded it now. The rowboat she'd been forbidden to play in as a child, even to sit in for fun, had vanished. The barn beyond shimmered like a mirage in the heat. At the opposite end of the field, Donnie Spink's woods grew dark and tangled as she remembered them. No signs saying they were leased to the one-shot hunting club like most of the land around here. Not even a posted no trespassing warning. She wondered who claimed them now. Donnie's daughter, she guessed, gone away to wherever she'd come from in the first place and letting the place run even wilder than before. The barn had fallen into worse repair. The formerly padlocked doors unsecured and sagging on rusty hinges. Jolie pushed him apart. Inside, it smelled of abandonment and decay. When she was a kid, she'd pulled loose boards apart at the back and slipped her skinny body through. Birds rustled in the eaves above and sunlight spilled through splintered wood. While stalls had, in some cases, collapsed entirely, the ladder to the loft still stood. Jolie gripped it with both hands and set a foot on the first rung, bouncing a little. It held firm. The first few times she climbed the ladder had been scary ones. Once she'd made the mistake of looking down, and the earthen floor below her spun while she clung to the rungs, unable to move at all for a long time. Now, Jolie lifted her other foot and was suspended above the ground. She waited another moment, testing for the slightest indication of a give to the board, but felt nothing. One foot up, one hand over. The next rung felt steady too. Again, she waited before lifting the other foot and placing her full weight there. 
You came back for this. Halfway up, she stopped and looked down. The floor of the barn was very far away. She'd hurt herself badly if she fell. She didn't allow herself to look down again as she climbed. One rung did feel soft and rotted as the toe of her shoe pressed it, and she bypassed it, contorting her body to step up two rungs at once. And now, at last, the loft above. Scattered sunlight lit patches of dusty boards. No one had used this as a real hayloft since her father was a child. She had slept up there and read enormous old books pilfered from her grandfather's library. And then, one long Indian summer, when she was nine years old, it had been taken from her. Her last sanctuary. Her last private spot. She had been awakened by the noise of someone groaning. Someone hurt in the barn. Peering through the opening, down past the ladder, she realized that the padlock was not secured. A space of light showed through the doors. She took the rungs swiftly. Heart pounding, she made her way down the row of empty stalls, sneakers scuffing on the hard-packed floor. In the last stall on her right, a naked man moved atop a woman, making a groaning noise. Jolie's hand flew to cover her mouth and stifle the little noise that tried to escape. She had heard puzzling talk of sex around school, fourth graders whispering as though it were some forbidden country someone occasionally stole back from with a little more information. She'd never imagined it would look so absurd. A second later, the woman opened her eyes and Jolie recognized her Aunt Bola. Wade, Aunt Bola said to the man grunting and heaving atop her, her eyes locked with Jolie's, and that was when Jolie realized that was her father there with her aunt. But he wouldn't stop, and Jolie stood like she was frozen, still staring at Aunt Bola, Aunt Bola still staring back, so long it seemed like just this side of forever. At last, her father gave a final heave and was still. What the hell is wrong with you? He snarled at Aunt Bola, rolling off of her, and in the act of doing so, caught sight of his daughter. For a moment, their eyes met and Jolie had the horrible feeling that her father was going to try to say something to her, to try to talk to her. She tried not to look at him at all. Her father opened his mouth, and Jolie broke into a run. She ran past him to the front of the barn and slammed the doors apart so hard that splinters tore into her palms. Remembering, Jolie wished now she'd never climbed into the loft. She couldn't think how she'd ever get back down that rotted ladder, Now, the sounds of fornicators in ecstasy rose up from below. Or was it the groans and shrieks of the damned? The stench reached her nostrils a second later. She'd been staring out of the field, into the sunlight, and the brilliance of the day outside made it difficult for her to see the dark interior. But she knew what the smell was. Old Donnie Spinks, dead like Luann had told her, in a pool of his own vomit. And she couldn't stop remembering That long-ago day, she had run as fast as she could across the field and into the woods, woods she didn't know like she knew the others because she'd been told to stay off of other people's property, woods she could get lost in. Donnie Spinks came upon her there, crying by the creek, the rattlesnake chittering inches from her as it poised to strike. Donnie's axe came down right by Joe Lee's head, and she started screaming, thinking he meant to kill her. After he took her up in his yard, she saw how he'd combed his hair up in neat tufts so no one could see the horns sprouting there. He didn't look like the devil in her dream at all. 
Not right at first, but Jolie knew better than to be fooled by appearances. She saw how the mark of the beast was woven in with the military tattoos across his arm, and she saw the flames reflected in his eyes. Was Jesus there, too, trying to get out? She wasn't sure whose miracle had saved her. Did it matter anymore? Twenty years later, maybe it did. A sob escaped her there in the loft, and Jolie took another step forward toward the smell. Another, and another, and before her now, a whole nest of dead snakes, ripe and rotting, their bodies swollen with maggots. The sob nearly turned into a giggle of relief before she realized that he had changed himself into something else. Wasn't that what the devil did? Changing himself into a serpent? What did it matter, one or many, live or dead? How else could snakes get up into a loft, if not through some divine or diabolical influence? Jolie had tried to tell her mother what happened in the loft. She had tried to tell her that very afternoon that she got home from Donnie Spink's house and her mother had slapped her and called her a nasty, terrible girl. She sent Jolie straight to her room, where the picture of Jesus waited. He was extending his arms out to her and begging her to save him. As she stared at him, she thought she saw the flesh on first his arms, and then his face begin to blacken and pop. You see how it is, he told her as blisters on his face burst and oozed. Then his head narrowed and flattened, his eyes slid back until they were on either side of his head, and a long, forked tongue snapped out at her. You see, he hissed, are you going to help me? The snakes before her now were dead, not hissing, not speaking to her. Jolie stumbled backward from them, and the board with most of her weight on it gave way with a sickening crack. One foot plunged through the rotted wood. She crashed to one knee half of her body still on solid floor. She leaned backwards, palms down behind her, and scooted herself back, her raw and bleeding leg held out stiff before her. Jolie began to breathe very deliberately. She would have to get back over the ladder and down again, but the recklessness which had possessed her earlier had fled. She lay flat on her back, hoping to distribute her weight across the boards, then rolled over on her stomach and began to drag herself across the loft. The air, suffused with the reek of the dead things in the corner, bore down on her, hot and fetid. When she reached the ladder, she looked at the nails and upper rungs and wondered that she'd made it to the top. She pulled on one of the nails holding the ladder secure and felt it give, bits of wood crumbling. She would set her weight on it and the entire structure would collapse. The floor was too far away to jump. If she did not descend soon, the floor here could give way too. She needed another miracle. A miracle like with the rattlesnakes and the fire. Jolie was the only one who knew how the fire had really happened. It hadn't been her daddy's cigarette like the fireman had thought. She had looked out the window and seen him coming. A whole army of them, carrying torches as they flew across the sky. Coming at last to bring her freedom from that place, just as Jesus had promised her when she was a child. They'd been terrible creatures, not at all like the pictures in her Bible or hanging up in the Sunday school rooms at church. Angels or demons, she wasn't sure, some vile combination of the two. Through the long, terrible night that followed, of smoke-burned lungs and seared flesh and desperate attempts to contain the fire before it spread into the woods, Jesus came to her. He told her everything was okay. 
It was him that woke her up and got her out of the house before the smoke choked her to death like it did her parents. He told her she was free now, but she had to run north and never look back. He and the devil had a lot still to work out, and she better go while she could. Jolie dragged herself forward another few inches, hiking her shirt up and scraping her stomach on the rough boards. Her foot struck another soft patch of wood and punched through. Another sob rattled her breathing. Now she was too frightened to move forward at all. Things fouled quickly in this heat. Her own body would ripen and burst, just as the snakes had. Oh, God, she said out loud, without thinking. And then, oh, Jesus, because she'd never thought that much about God, but Jesus had always been there for her. She didn't like having the dead things out of her sight. She was afraid to shift so that she could see him. She panted hard, the rotting flesh smell turning her stomach, the fear clenching her insides up in knots. By the time anyone found her, it would be too late. Already, her stomach swelled, the maggots breeding inside her. Jolie stretched her hands out and pulled on the ladder again. A piece of wood the size of her hand crumbled away, leaving the shaft of the rusted nail entirely exposed. And then she heard the terrible rushing in the air as they descended at last, the serpents with angel's wings. They disguised themselves that way, so you couldn't tell who sent them. But Jolie was no longer fooled. Her hand grabbed for the solid top rung of the ladder, wanting only to reassure herself of its remaining strength. The rung split in half as she grasped it, one piece tumbling to the floor below. Jolie moaned. They were all around her now. They lined up alongside her and folded their flat, smooth heads in pious prayer while their forked tongues slipped from their mouths and their snake bodies writhed in unseemly ecstasy. Jolie let them settle their feather-soft wings on her, run their tongues along the length of her body and back again. A gentle swell from their wings lifted her from where she lay, flat on her stomach, and she could see out the window at the front of the loft, see the drying pond glistening and the fields golden in the noonday sun and the cool dark of the woods beyond. That concludes this episode of the Curse Land Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. And a special thanks this episode goes out to everyone who has already left a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you listen. I appreciate those very much. And hey, I'm not a man who's above feeling vanity any more than anybody else. If you're a fan of the show and you haven't already left a review, consider going over there and saying something nice. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, you could also email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Until next time, I'll talk to you all later.